Hey, buddy. Hey, it's bedtime stories. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. On November the 12th of 1957, Paul Dennis Reed Jr. was born in Richmond Hills, Texas, and it's safe to assume he immediately got to work, being difficult. You might think that unfair to assume a baby would have been difficult because of what they would eventually become, but when the home life is in disarray, when the nest is unwelcoming, cold, and poorly constructed, a baby doesn't warm it up, doesn't fix it. A baby cries and demands attention, which, let's be honest, doesn't bode well for their chances at being treated properly. I often wonder how much of our personalities, our capacity for love, mercy, empathy, is decided, instilled, nurtured, when we are just a baby. I think maybe a lot. And of Paul Reed Jr.'s early years, what we know for a fact is that there wasn't a whole lot of structure for the boy. He had sisters that he liked well enough, eventually too much when puberty struck. He had a mother, Josephine Marie, who was unhappy, had married young to escape the heat of an abusive home only to find herself in a frying pan, simmering in the needs of children and dependent upon her pickled husband, Paul Reed Sr., who rarely plopped in the bacon. The Reeds had no car, but that wasn't completely necessary in Senior's line of work. He was a repo man and would use public transit to get to an assignment, fueling up from a flask on the slow, rumbling journey to his dangerous assignments. Repo work in the early 60s in Texas wasn't as legitimate as the proud services on television today. Senior was basically a car thief, dependent upon his wits and his willingness to dole out violence in order to get the job done. And most times he did, returning home not by bus but by a repossessed vehicle, though the money he'd make would often dilute and trickle into a bar till before it made its way into Josephine's dishpan hands. By the time Paul Reed Jr. was supposed to be entering kindergarten, his mother had had enough. She split with her derelict husband and divided up the kids dropping Paul and one of the girls into the rambling repo man's lap, where they didn't sit well. The duty of raising young Paul Reed fell to his paternal grandmother, who was ill-prepared at her age to be thrown back into the demanding role of mother to two energetic little kids. Rather than being enrolled in school, Paul just kinda sat around. Well, that's not true, actually. Paul never stayed still for long. He filled his time with mischief, committing petty crimes like stealing mail and laundry from neighbors, as well as terrorizing his poor grandmother, barricading her in her room most mornings just to mess with the frail woman. The now seven-year-old pushed things too far one day when he lit grandma's bed on fire, with her in it, and after his granny called her preacher for help, head bloodied from a toy Paul had bashed her with, the wild child was hustled away, to a home for incorrigible children in Houston, Texas. 
Paul Reed Jr. is a real piece of work from the start, as I said, but it becomes somehow even more unruly following successive head injuries he suffers while still a child. One coming by brick, another via car hitting him, and a third after a minibike spill on the grounds of the jail for little boys. Eventually, Paul is enrolled in school and predictably performs poorly. He is placed in special ed and scheduled to ride the short bus, which, like for most kids back then who were forced into this ridiculous routine, ends in him suffering from embarrassment and low self-esteem. Psychic maladies that, as Paul grows older, he combats by getting larger, obsessing over sports, and working out. Paul becomes an absolute beast and an insufferable narcissist. He idolizes Jack LaLanne, the so-called godfather of fitness, and pledges never to drink or smoke like his father so he can reach what he believes to be his destiny as a superstar in the squeaky clean living country music scene. The next town's Van Zant, except sober, built like a bull and completely devoid of talent, charisma, and good looks. Reed isn't as dumb as people will paint him out to be later on, however. Anyone who lives a life made up of lies has to have something going on up there, even if it's malfunctioning. And what smarts Paul has are poured into criminal activity from the start. He returns to live with his mother once in his late teens, but when he attempts to sexually assault his sisters, along with his mother, it kind of takes the shine off of the reunion. He spends some time back in group homes before forging some friendships with other criminally-minded outsiders. Throwaways are what these types like to think of themselves, misfits, and maybe they are. But being a victim is no excuse to victimize others, a concept most dirtbags willfully ignore. And Paul Reed was a huge dirtbag, using, abusing, terrorizing every single person foolish enough to get close to him. Until finally, like what should happen with any aggressive animal, he ended up in a cage. Following a violent armed robbery of a Houston steakhouse in 1983, Paul Reed, now 26, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The coward tried everything to get out of the mess. He promised lawmakers that he'd snitch on every prisoner in the state of Texas if necessary. But the robbery had been so aggressive that he was seen for what he was, a psychopath that would never turn things around and needed to be kept locked away to spare others from his selfish and completely reckless ways. Paul's defense argued that he had a, quote, broken brain, something that certainly seemed to be contributing to his behavior in court, once putting a paper hat in his attorney's head and guffawing like a moron, likely acting crazy in an effort to provoke a light sentence. He'd fall out of his chair at times, mutter to himself about aliens and such, clandestine forces out to ruin him, Typical self-important garbage assholes like Reed used to seem far out, interesting, or worth a shit. But that was just even more reason to throw away the key. And once the doors clanged shut behind Reed, many were left feeling relieved, including a woman that Paul had planned to marry, a woman who'd been warned by Paul's own sisters not to get involved with their bullshitting bull of a brother. But they didn't throw away the key. In 1990, they found it. Seven years into his 20-year sentence, Paul is paroled. He's in his prime at the age of 33, and despite the warnings of every guard who watched him, every doctor who treated him, Reed was swept out the door, 
along with a bunch of other pleasantly surprised inmates, as part of an effort to alleviate overcrowding within the Texas state prison system. You may recall an episode of Dark Topic that covered another Texas outlaw dubbed the Broomstick Killer. Kenneth Allen McDuff and Paul Reed have very similar stories, both serving time in the notorious Huntsville unit, both clearly a danger to themselves and others, both released as a result of not only the better judgment of professionals being ignored, but by it being acknowledged and shrugged at. And, of course, both going on to do exactly what anyone who knew Macduff and now Paul Reed would, if let loose, go for broke and kill a bunch of innocent people in the process. April Fool's Day of 1990 saw the end to a trail of torture and murder that had lasted 15 years, haunting interstates, turn-off towns, and rest areas across America. Robert Ben Rhodes, the truck stop killer, had been using the cab of his 18-wheeler as a torture chamber, long-hauling across America, pulling over on occasion to let a naked, chained-about-the-neck rape slave defecate at roadside. And that was only if he liked them. They were invisible people. That's how Rhodes thought of them. But on April 1st of 1990, one of those ghosts rattled the chains loud enough for a suspicious trooper to hear. And the nightmare ended. Right around this time, the recently paroled Paul Reed takes work as a trucker himself. But he is not destined to join the shadow mob of deviant road hogs that use the trade as a means to hunt unfortunates. Though I'm certain he would have, had he not crashed his rig and smashed himself up immediately, injuring his head yet again, an incident that put Reed on disability for a couple of years and qualified him to receive plastic surgery to fix his face. They did their best. Paul looked like he'd had his features painted back on by the time it was through. It didn't help that Paul rocked what used to be called a dick-sucking stash, high above the lip like a bat fleeing a cave. Author Judith A. Yates, who wrote a book on the case titled When Nashville Bled, described the look as smeared, and I can't top that. It's exactly how Paul Reed's face looks. Smeared. As if he'd stepped from a ghastly portrait of which the artist had attempted some statement about the subject's true nature. Reed, it goes without saying, I'm sure, was an odd duck. Many believe he put on an act as odd to gain sympathy from the courts. But truly, he was just plain weird. Off. The mix of his troubled background, egregious head injuries, and the fact that he was a natural psychopath all ran together to create a completely volatile character, who, unfortunately, was physically imposing enough that he rarely, if ever, was confronted about his behavior. Paul Reed did Paul Reed. He got it into his mind that he wanted to be a country music star, so he bought expensive guitars, got the boots, the jeans, the fancy shirts, fancy hats... Reed had time off now to pursue his out-of-left-field dream, one based on zero talent and the blind confidence all knuckleheads possess, funded by compensation for the accident. Though that stipend likely wasn't enough to fund the lifestyle Reed was portraying himself within, he was no doubt committing robberies in his spare time, his specialty being restaurants, fast-food joints. Unusual targets, but naturals in the mind of Paul Reed. 
He'd worked plenty of menial jobs as a grunt in kitchens, and had always been obsessed with the tills. Thousands of dollars in there by day's end, and only a handful of apathetic kids between the loot and his pocket. Still, once his compensation ran out along with a small inheritance, Paul needed a job to keep his parole officer satisfied. So he worked gas stations, often taking photos of himself with the nicer cars he'd fill up, and later he'd show the pictures to strangers at the honky-tonks he'd moonlight at as an up-and-coming country singer. Paul would tell every new person he'd meet, even court-appointed doctors that he was to check in with, that he himself was a doctor. And of course it was clear that the oaf with a sub-70 IQ was lying, obvious that the cars and the greasy Polaroids he showed off were vehicles he'd simply taken his own picture in front of. But again, Reed was so confident and massive and strange that it wasn't worth bringing up. Best to just smile, nod, and then slowly move away from the jabbering, smooth-faced giant. Paul Reed never shut up, and some took that as him being friendly, but he just loved the sound of his own voice. He was like a bargain basement version of Tony Robbins. In fact, Paul resembled the guru a little. That smeared look. And yes, I'm aware that Tony Robbins has giganticism. Uh, midget giganticism is the proper terminology, I believe. Wouldn't want to get myself in any trouble there. Justin Parks was Paul Reed's stage name, which ironically is where he should have been relegated to perform. Just in Parks. Despite the fact that he was a terrible singer, yodeling his way through the dive bar sets he treated like concerts, Reed seemed completely ignorant to how poorly his music was being received, even though the only claps he heard while performing were that of the exit doors slamming or of hands slapping over ears. Things were going so well with his career, he felt, that he decided to hit the road and drive to Nashville in pursuit of what he felt was his destiny. His parole conditions had simplified to him being required to send a yearly letter stating his whereabouts, his job status, and even though Reed continued to show blatant instability by sending frequent letters requesting the government get out of his misshapen head, Paul Reed had basically been given the green light to go and do whatever he wanted. And what he wanted was easy money. Going to prison had taught him one thing. He didn't like it. So this time around, he'd leave no witnesses to send him back. Many a young musician has made the trip to Nashville, only to find themselves on the sidelines working minimum wage jobs, something that must be a truly humbling experience. Reed would be no different, except, of course, the humble part. After a few disastrous gigs, he quickly ended up bussing tables, washing dishes, and lending his strength to lift slabs of meat, boxes of produce, at a Shoney's restaurant. He told his fellow co-workers that he was in Nashville as a law student. He was also a doctor and a famous country music singer. But his true passion was doing dishes and lifting boxes. Around this time, Paul's father passed away. And I mention this only to share that Paul had been acting quite strange leading up to Senior's death. According to his mother and sisters, Paul had become paranoid about the government listening to his thoughts had taken to wrapping his head with a tensor bandage to keep the waves out. He was working it obsessively, four to five hours a day, and was just a ball of energy, 
all over the place with his thoughts, his goals, his beliefs. At his father's funeral, Paul arrived wearing workout clothes and upon his head sported one of those flimsy Burger King crowns. To say Paul Reed was having trouble acclimating himself to public life after nearly a decade in prison would be an understatement, but his time in prison likely had little to do with his troubling behavior. It was just his broken brain. A fellow dish pig at the Nashville Shoney's would later testify that Paul would often openly fantasize about robbing restaurants and making sure not to leave any witnesses. This is a piece of information that would soon become valuable, that is, if the young man had thought to give it up once the murders started. In a neighborhood named Donaldson, just a few miles from the Shoney's Paul worked at, existed one of the most immaculate casual seafood establishments in America, Captain D's, which, interestingly, was owned by Shoney's for a time. You may have laughed at my comment about a Captain D's being immaculate, but truly, this Captain D's at this time, February of 1997, had a reputation to uphold, as it was the first established Captain D's restaurant in America, and it had a manager who took that distinction as his honor, to make shine. 25-year-old Steve Hampton had just celebrated the birth of his first son, who he'd been so proud to make his junior. When another junior in Paul Reed tapped on the window of the first established Captain D's in the early morning of February 16, 1997. 16-year-old Sarah Jackson, the only other employee helping her manager prepare for what would be a busy Sunday, wasn't even supposed to be working. But she'd begged her God-fearing mother to skip church just this once so she could help out and make a little extra money to put a CD player in her car. A car she had so sweetly named Emily. Sarah was a month away from her 17th birthday and in the prime of her high school years. The man at the window was large but friendly looking in the way most giant men make an extra effort to appear. So she likely wasn't in any way alarmed when Steve opened the door to accept the man's application for work. As soon as the door shuts behind Reed, he locks it and pulls out a gun. He orders the manager to open the safe, as Sarah likely looks on, frozen by terror. Steve Hampton calmly opens the safe and hands Paul Reed around six grand. Reed then orders the two employees into the cooler and has them lay on their stomachs. He then bids the two innocents farewell and executes them. Paul Reed always said goodbye to his victims before pulling the trigger. As a final insult, he steals Steve Hampton's wallet, which contains $600, and leaves the scene, driving away, tossing the contents of the manager's wallet out the window, leaving a fingerprint on a movie rental card that eventually will help bring him down. A deputy will nearly interrupt the commission of the cold-blooded murders, while checking in on the establishment during his morning rounds. Officer Wells had a son, Jeff, who worked at D's at this time, and would stop in for coffee most mornings. Unfortunately, on this day, he was called away to another much less heinous crime that was in progress. 
Needless to say, the double homicide rocked Donaldson, and it wouldn't be long before the whole of Tennessee would become aware of the trouble going down in Nashville. Paul Reed was questioned in the Captain D's case, a composite sketch made by Captain D's employees who had given a large, dark-haired, and oddly mustachioed man an application the night previous, resembled Paul. But he wasn't considered a suspect after a criminal check came up empty as a result of Paul changing his birth date. Anybody who resembled the sketch was questioned, and Paul was one of the first on the list. But this change of birth date, a move that some point to as indication that Paul had at least some smarts, shouldn't have been enough for him to slink away. Claiming a different date of birth shouldn't be enough to make one's past invisible there in 1997. Paul's fellow employees all described him as sweet and friendly and generous, so the searchlight quickly swept past the killer, a man whose prints matched those on the murdered manager's movie rental card, and were on many a file back in Texas, along with charges for committing violent restaurant robberies. On the late evening of March 23, 1997, five weeks after the massacre at Captain D's, Paul Reed strolls up to a McDonald's restaurant less than five miles from the first murders and runs into four employees who are leaving work together after a long shift. 23-year-old Robert Sewell was supposed to have been at home already, but he'd stayed to cover for the manager who'd felt unwell. Being a huge fan of science fiction, Robert, if given time, would probably have marveled at the small circumstances and seemingly innocuous decisions that placed him in this parking lot, facing a large man with a gun, knowing he was the one who'd have to open the safe. Andrea Brown, 17, an extremely bright, outspoken, and fun-loving student, couldn't have been too thrilled to have just clocked out, only to have this menacing ogre force her back into work. The minimum wage job certainly wasn't worth this kind of hassle. Incredible how nearly every outfit that requires kids to do undesirable work while collecting money from the public to stuff in a till, making them a clear and easy target for robbery, pays so poorly. Ronald Santiago, 27, was from South America. He was an extremely hard worker with dreams to take his wife and baby girl to Disney. That dream would never materialize as this nightmare quickly swept him into the storeroom to be executed, along with Andrea and Robert, once the latter had opened the safe. One minute, there's a group of young people excitedly leaving work on that post-shift high we all know, and moments later, they're dead. The last of them, waiting for his turn, when Paul Reed says goodbye, and the gun clicks empty. Jose Antonio Ramirez Gonzalez can't believe it. His three new co-workers lay face down, at least one still gurgling, in a line beside him. This had been his very first day. In fact, the only reason Robert Sewell had come in that night was to train Jose, who couldn't speak English very well and was in the country illegally. The job opportunity had been a blessing, or at least he'd thought so up until five minutes ago. Jose is small at 5'6", but he's game, and he jumps up when Reed's gun fails to fire. Reed, who's almost a foot taller and 125 pounds heavier, easily fends Jose off and grabs a kitchen knife, stabbing the smaller man repeatedly in the chest, neck, and head before dropping him to the ground and giving the helpless young man a few more stabs for good measure. 
17 total wounds. Jose plays dead, and Reed rushes to empty the registers, clearing out the coins and startup cash for the following day, bringing the cost of four innocent lives to around $3,000. Once the killer is gone, Jose miraculously stirs to life, bringing the total down to three young lives. He manages to get to a phone and calls for help, repeating the one word of English he knows. Please. 17-year-old Andrea is still alive, but she dies later in hospital. Jose survives and refines the police sketch, and now looks a lot like Paul Reed, but the serial killer will suffer scrutiny only from those who tease him at the Shoney's he continues to work at. The stress is beginning to show on Paul, however, as he snaps and throws a heavy dish at a small waitress one shift, leading to his immediate termination. No matter. Paul's making good money. Killing teenagers and 20-somethings. Destroying dreams and families. For a few thousand bucks a pop. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to... Uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic 
and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash Dark Topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Exactly one month after the massacre at the McDonald's, April the 23rd of 97, the villain the press had dubbed the fast food killer strikes again. Reed is aware that plainclothes officers have been assigned to sit in parking lots and pose as customers inside Nashville restaurants. So he's driven out to Clarksville. Paul has learned and is likely furious that the young man named Jose has survived when he knocks on the window of a recently closed Baskin Robbins. Angie Holmes, 21, is a new mother, a new wife, and is manager of this Baskin Robbins after a recent transfer from a Tennessee store. Angie is an extremely intelligent and energetic young woman, taking classes when not busy working and being a new mother. She has just been accepted to a discerning surgical nurse program and is in the midst of an insanely busy yet joyous time of her life. When a knock comes on her store window, as she and 16-year-old Michelle Mace finish up their closing duties. Paul Reed manages to talk one of the ladies into opening the door. This store was located in a fairly desolate area at the time, and the scene from the lonesome road of the massive man entering to where the two demure innocents were is in my mind like a dusky late evening fairy tale scene. The wolf entering the hen house. Reed pulls his gun, and it is thought that 16-year-old Michelle, who was a very outspoken and confident teenager, likely gave him some attitude and probably threatened that her brother would be there any minute to pick her up, which was true. Reed likely moved quickly as a result, tying the girls up with their apron strings after forcing Angie to empty the safe. He then pushed his hostages out of the store and into his vehicle. The terrible drive took Angie past her apartment where her husband was waiting with the baby for her return. Who knows what the girls were thinking? or how Paul Reed was treating them. Was he reassuring or threatening? Was he angry with the girls for maybe resisting or threatening him? It's not clear, but he did handle this slaughter differently than the rest, with more viciousness and intimacy than the others. Once he pulled into Dunbar Cave State Park, Paul walked the girls down a trail. A walk Michelle likely had made many times with friends and family, a walk that Angie had made recently when she'd been married down here. It is not clear if the girls were sexually assaulted, but what we know for certain is that Paul Reed took them down to the water, hands bound behind their backs, and murdered Michelle and Angie by plunging a knife into their throats, then slashing at them. A man walking his dog the next morning would discover the two missing women, floating in the water along a trail, not too deep into the park. Seven murdered in a three-month span, all taken while either preparing to start or end the day at a fast food establishment. And investigators are scrambling to collect suspects, coordinating the biggest manhunt in Nashville history when Paul Reed decides to make it easy. The manager of Shoney's, who had fired Paul Reed, Mitch Roberts, is home and settling in with his family one evening, not long after the most recent killings, when the doorbell rings. It's Paul, asking if Mitch would please come outside to talk about getting his job back. 
Mitch attempts to let the large, unstable man down easy. No, he can't hire him back. No, he won't reconsider in the future. And sorry, he can't recommend him to another store. You almost killed that woman, Paul, with that heavy plate. You're lucky we didn't call the police. When Paul finally realizes that this is not going to go his way, he pulls a gun and some handcuffs from his little red car. And in that instant, for Mitch Roberts, it all clicks. He had heard that police believed the fast food killer to be a large, dark-haired man with a mustache who probably drove a red car. And now that Reed has exposed his own colors as being black, the Shoney's manager's blood runs cold. Paul demands that Mitchell put on the cuffs, and again the truth is clear. If he puts on those cuffs, he will die. Paul will drive him to Shoney's, force him to open the safe, and then execute him. He may even return to kill his family, who are now approaching the windows to see what's going on. Mitchell acts. He shoves Paul and makes a mad dash to his house, thinking he will be shot at any moment as he does so. But then he's inside, and Paul is banging on the door. Mitchell wisely yells out for his wife to give him his gun, and the banging stops. Soon after, Paul's 97 Ford Escort that he'd bought after the Captain D's caper, partially with coins, a vehicle that's covered in DNA from the Baskin-Robbins girls, barrels out of the driveway. Mitchell Roberts, of course, calls the police, and when they hear his story, they quickly devise a strategy to lure Paul in. Investigators ask Mitchell to call Reed back over, and as he's nodding his head, agreeing to do so, trying to find Paul's number while being coached as to how to best approach laying this trap, the phone rings. It's Paul. He's sorry. He shouldn't have done that. He hopes they can talk about getting his job back. He didn't mean to scare anyone. He's just been having a rough go lately. It's unbelievable. The ego. The stupidity of Paul Reed. The childish view he has of his actions. Yes, Mitchell says, as his family and the investigators look on in disbelief. Yeah, of course. No hard feelings at all, Paul. You big lug. Come back on over. Yep. Okay, take care, buddy. See you soon. Thanks, Paul. Can't wait. Bye. Investigators rush to move their vehicles, and minutes later, Paul Reed returns and is taken down approaching the Roberts residence, as casual as can be, no doubt intending to not leave this time around until one way or the other, he got his way. The arrest is swift and without any incident. It doesn't take long for investigators to breathe a sigh of relief knowing that they've got their man. Reed's fingerprint matches that in the movie rental card of Steve Hampton, the Captain D's store manager. Blood matching the Baskin-Robbins victims is found in his shoes, and other forensic evidence is collected from his car. In the McDonald's murders, Jose Gonzalez starts shaking when he sees a photo of Paul Reed. He's convinced this is the man who tried to stab him to death after executing his co-workers. The trials are a circus, Paul Reed's ego is thoroughly fed by the attention. In court, he acts typically, fanning insanity, claiming his defense team to be a group of actors hired by a U.S. government mind control group he said to be called, quote, scientific technology, which is, frankly, just so fucking stupid it hurts. Reed's sisters would testify in his defense, begging the courts to be easy on their brother who had always been mentally incompetent and showed poor judgment and was a victim of a broken brain, a victim just as much as any of those he'd murdered, in fact. 
The press takes this angle and runs with it, and before long the public is sympathizing with the big smear-faced oaf. The victim families are made to feel like they're picking on a mentally disabled man. In court, Paul blows kisses at the girls. He shows open pity for Jose while he testifies shakily through a translator, later telling interviewers who bring him fruit baskets and candy in exchange for a few quotes that he just wants to give poor Jose a hug. He feels really bad for the guy, for how confused and nervous he was up on the stand. In the end, justice is served, however. Reed is handed a Tennessee record seven death sentences. He appeals the hell out of them until one day he has a change of heart. Paul Reed accepts his fate and announces that he's done fighting and is ready to die. A date is set for 2003 and the victim families are bussed in, hundreds of protesters greeting them at the prison, screaming insults at them, calling them murderers. The belief amongst the mouth-breathing throng was that Reed was mentally handicapped and completely helpless to have pulled the trigger on five and yanked the blade across and into the throats of two. Oh, and stabbed Paul's little buddy Jose 17 times. He couldn't help it. And he shouldn't have to die because these people want their revenge. Shame on them. When the fast food killer was finished murdering his last meal and the victim families had all taken their seats, something absolutely incredible happened. God spoke to Paul Reed, and he abruptly changed his mind. God had told him that he had purpose on earth still, and that he must call the whole thing off. One would think that a prisoner could never have the power in calling off their own execution, moments before it was scheduled to transpire. But that is in essence what happened. Reed's attorneys requested a stay of execution, which was immediately granted. Perhaps the public pressure to spare the broken brain bandit made this decision easy, a relief to make even. And Paul Reed, his spirit as full as his belly, returned to death row and geared up for the appeals process once again. A broken brain in a broken system. The families were bust out of the prison, enduring jeers and insults from the wild-eyed mob that was certain Paul Reed had been executed. Many thanks went up to God later that evening when it was made public that he'd been spared. Talking to God wasn't something those with any common sense would do for some time following this debacle. There are moments in history where it is very clear that if there is a God, a higher power, it's pretty firm on letting things play out as they may. More all-seeing than all-doing. And so Paul Reed went on living, went on corresponding to his many admirers, went on acting as if he were something special, a tool of the devil whom God had deemed too special to let fall into ruin and captured into his glory for a higher purpose. But in the end, it's all a bunch of bullshit, of course. Things don't happen for a reason. Young mothers don't get their throat slit beside their bridal path as part of a grand design for their killer. Teenage girls don't get executed with their faces to the floor begging for mercy just so a bunch of half-wits can craft signs of protest and scream for mercy on a man they've been won over by a press's love for glamorizing killers. It's ridiculous. Enough to break my own brain. To think that a seven-time convicted killer like Paul Reed Jr. could earn anything more than a bullet to the back of his own head in the bowels of a prison before being tossed into an incinerator. In mid-October of 2013, a month before his 56th birthday, 
Reed was admitted to Nashville General Hospital as he was suffering from pneumonia. Maybe God was just running late because he died two weeks later, somewhat mysteriously. Paul had always obsessed over his health and fitness, but it seemed he may have let himself go when he let God. As he lay suffering in his deathbed, I like to think a shadow with a long needle entered his room. A shadow wearing an ID badge with the word scientific technology on it. It sticks the needle into Paul's fat arm and whispers goodbye to the brute, much like Paul had done to his untold number of victims before administering a fatal shot. do it that's a lost episode of dark topic maybe some of you've heard that before um it was in the back catalog of patreon i decided to repurpose it or not repurpose it reproduce it make it sound a little bit better i felt that that was an episode that kind of got lost and um needed to be put back out so i spent my day doing that there's a waking up with jack luna coming out soon i just didn't want to hit you guys with too much weird shit without a real episode coming out. So that's the way it is. Lots of uh, content on patreon.com slash dark topic. The last episode that you heard was with Deadbug. Some people think that that was me talking to myself, playing a character. I'm not that talented. I'm also not that psychotic. <laughs> Can you imagine? I was talking to Deadbug about this. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, Jack, I really like your show. Oh, Deadbug, I'm a big fan of your show, too. Like, in what world? I mean, maybe in this world, people would do shit like that. Not me. I wouldn't do that. Deadbug has a YouTube channel called Deadbug Says. He's been shadow banned. You might have been able to catch a part of the reason why (laughs) on our episode together. Um, But I'm a huge fan of Deadbug have been for a few years and we got connected um, through Kent from True Crime Kent and 1159 Media reaching out to him after I hipped him to uh, Deadbug and uh, we've become friends and have decided to do a series that is exclusive to Patreon for now called uh, Tales from the Bottom Down which you got a taste of on the last episode and eventually that'll become its own podcast we're hoping uh, that we'll release in the future and I'll let you know about that. But if you want to hear what we're doing together uh, consistently um, over time, you can come over to uh, to our individual patrons. That's patreon.com slash darktopic and patreon.com slash deadbug. It's the way um, artists like myself and deadbug are able to um, support our ourselves, our families, um, as there's not a whole lot of ad revenue that comes through for channels like deadbugs or dark topic. Anyways, I um, hope you're all doing really well. I'm doing I'm doing really good. Uh, winter is upon me and us out here. Snow and cold and it's like walking on the moon again and everything is back to lockdown mode, which is the way that I kind of like it. I wish COVID was, you know, forever. <laughs> no, I, I just like the, I like the cold weather. And it's back, so I'm in a good mood about that. Lots of work being done on my end. Um, just went to pick up 
my son and uh, was driving down the road to, to pick him up and go alongside this fence. And they're letting all the kids out. And there's like five high school kids. So I'm, I'm going up to an elementary school, but there's the high school across the street. So there's like five high school kids walking along in front of me. And I pull up behind him. It's snowing, like pretty hard. Not a blizzard, but, you know, snowing. And uh, the roads are slippery. So I come up slow and they can hear me. And there's a little kid that's walking with the one guy and he turns around and he tries to push them. He's like, hey, there's a, there's a car coming. And uh, the one guy looks back. And then they start to slowly move over to the right, like slowly. And two of them are still talking. So I honk my horn and they all turn around. And then they're looking at me as I go to go around them. And I open up my window and I go, you got to move when a fucking car's coming, fuckos. <laughs> fuckos. I call them. And as I'm doing back at my window, I heard the guy go, fuckos. Yeah, and I joke. You know, it just take it takes a lot for me not just to run those kids over, you know. <laughs> it's the light is brighter than the dark is dark. And you you gotta move towards that light. That's a Jordan Peterson quote from the Theo Vaughn podcast. <sighs> this past weekend. The light is brighter than the dark is dark. You get in a situation, and I know this is ridiculous, me talking about this, uh, when it has to do with, like, kids on a street. But when I'm pulling up behind some kids and they're just walking, like, they don't give a fuck, like, nothing can happen to them because that's what kids feel like in this world now, you know? They're protected. Nothing back in them. There's no bullies. There's nobody smacking them on the side of the head like it was with me when I was a kid. I get jumped on the way back home from school going through an alley. You know, I'd walk fucking 15 minutes around just not to get beat up. <laughs> And I pull up behind them in a vehicle that could destroy them all. And they act like nothing can happen to them. It can't. You don't know who's in that vehicle. And for a moment, it's like, you know, I'm not even close, okay? I'm not even close. But what I'm trying to say is that in life, there are these moments, uh, not just in a vehicle behind children on a road, <laughs> but where you'll make a split-second decision based on, this animosity is built up into you, this, this anger, this angst, um, maybe what's going on in your life, you know, what, what's going on with your job, what's going on with your family, what's going on with you mentally. You know, we're all at a, uh, having a tough time all the time, not just now, but always. And you got to remember that the light is brighter than the dark is dark. And you got to just pull back and say, hey, fucko. Moo! You know, let them know. That's fine. That's that's good enough. That that got it out of me. That was fine. That's good enough. And hearing them laugh took took some of the uh, the poison out of it for me as well. But I think that they'll probably think twice before slowing down when someone's coming up behind them. I hope so. This world, man. This life. Plenty of people living in boxes where they think just to stay still, just to be good. Well, they think to be good is to stay still. That's not true. To, to stay still is to be nothing. To be good is to take action. To be evil is to take action. Uh, there's the right choice, the wrong choice, and no choice at all. The worst choice you can ever make is no choice. 
Um, you got to take action. And my action in that situation should have been not to say, hey, fucko. It should have been like, guy, I saw a friend of mine get hit by a car when I was your same age by being a dickhead on the street, thinking that he was invincible. I saw him fucking fly 15 feet in the air, land on his head, and he was never the same. That's a true story. His name was Jimmy. I saw that. My anger doesn't come from the kids not moving. If I never saw Jimmy fly like that, I probably would have just chilled. But come on, man. This is real life. I should have stopped and explained that story instead. But at least I didn't run him over, right? Anyways, just uh, a little window into what's going on in the middle of nowhere. Somewhere in Canada. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. I'll be at you real soon with the Waking Up with Jack Luna. And uh, that case there, you know, it's not that you're going to enjoy it, but I, I hope that you felt that it was worth um, hearing again if you've heard it, or hearing for the first time if you hadn't. The fast food killer. You know, what a piece of shit. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Subliminal message, patreon.com slash darktopic for exclusives, or click the button for Apple Plus if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. I'll pull my skirt up. Or down now. Yeah.